Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let's give our attention to the hearing of God's word this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, there are defining moments in all of our lives, crossroads which we come to, which, depending on which way we go, profoundly impacts the rest of our lives. And sometimes we uh, are afforded the opportunity to make that choice for ourselves. Other times, it seems as though life has made the choice for us, and we find ourselves thrust onto paths that we would have never chosen for ourselves. And no one ever chooses to have a spouse die. No one ever chooses to bury their own children. No one ever chooses to suffer from a life-threatening disease that could have implications for the rest of one's life. But nevertheless, these events profoundly impact our lives. And while whether, whether we are defined by the choices we have made or choices that have been made for us, though, all of us, all of us are on a journey. All of us are on a particular path headed to a certain destination. And as we begin this little series in the book of Ruth, I think these first five verses prompt us to ask ourselves the question, where am I going? Where am I headed? What, what direction is my life taking? The first chapter of the book of Ruth is a story of choices made and Choices seemingly thrust upon people, and it is about the long-term consequences of those decisions made. Very often, the consequences turn out to not be what we expected. But our lives bear the marks of the decisions we have made, and the book of Ruth, among other things, reminds us of the simple, straightforward lesson that the choices we make in life have consequences. At the same time, though, the book of Ruth is also teaching us that our lives are not simply the sum of decisions that we have made or choices that have been made for us. There is another factor at work, another variable, a variable that has the power to change everything. And that variable is the God of grace who directs the outcomes of those decisions and events according to his sovereign and wise and perfect 
purpose for his people. You see, his, his grace, we're going to see this as we walk through this story together. His grace and good purposes are not always easily discerned, but he's always at work. And as believers, one of the takeaways from the book of Ruth is this comforting lesson that the grace of God is always the defining element of the believing life. But this morning, as we just begin to make our way into this wonderful story, I want us to consider two roads, two roads this morning. The first one is the road to nowhere, and the second road is the road home. Sin always leads subtly to a dead end. Repentance and faith leads us home. And so first of all, let's consider the road to nowhere. This little book begins by telling us in the opening words the time in which these things took place. It was during the, times in which, the time in which the judges ruled. Now, that's not merely a, a date stamp. It is rather a theological statement about the character of the times in which these events took place. And so the book of Ruth takes place during the days of the judges. So you remember that God, through Moses, delivered his people out of the land of Egypt and led them through the wilderness and by the leadership of Joshua, then led them into the promised land. And, and then a period of time went by before the time of the kings when you had Saul and David and Solomon and then the monarchy divided and you had the northern and southern kingdoms with their own monarchies. That time period in the in-between, the time of the judges, is where we are in the book of Ruth. And the time of judges was a dark and bleak period in the history of God's people. It was a time of moral and spiritual decay, a time in which even after the very first generation, after entering into the promised land, people began to turn their backs on the Lord. And so it's a sad story, the book of Judges, of this downward cyclical spiral heading ever closer to apostasy. If you've studied Judges, you know that there's this cycle throughout the book where the people turn away from the Lord and rebel against him. And the Lord sends discipline to call his people back, perhaps in the form of outside oppression coming in, or perhaps in the form of a famine. More about that in a moment. And then the people would be moved by the Lord's discipline to repent and return to the Lord. And then the Lord would raise up a deliverer who would provide some kind of rest for the people of God. That's the cycle in the book of Judges. But as you get towards the end of the book, things change a little bit. The people turn away from the Lord. The Lord disciplines them. But the people no longer repent. These are dark days in the days of the Judges. And apart from the times when God sent a deliverer to rescue his people and turn their hearts back to him, the days of Judges were marked by disobedience, and spiritual decline. And such rebellion was inevitably followed by God's discipline, just as he had promised in the covenant that was made with Israel at Mount Sinai. 
And I think that context is the key, really, for understanding these opening five verses in the book of Ruth. It was during this time that a man moved his family out of Israel. A man by the name of Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. Their two sons are uh, Malon and Kilian. They, are, uh, they were Ephrathites from the little town of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, there's a great irony in those words. They came from the town of Bethlehem. Because the very word Bethlehem means house of bread. And here they are fleeing from a famine. They lived in the breadbasket of Israel, but there was no bread in the house of bread. And so they started to think, well, maybe we should go somewhere else. People here are starving. And Elimelech and his, his family, coming from the breadbasket of Israel decide to leave home and head elsewhere. Because about 50 miles away, across the Dead Sea, on the high plateau of Moab, there was no famine. And so Elimelech is faced with, with a choice. He could, he could stay in Bethlehem, the empty breadbasket of Israel, or he could go searching for greener fields elsewhere. And Elimelech made what must have seemed at the time like the necessary and wise choice. He, he took his family and we're told they went to sojourn in the land of Moab. But we need to understand this, friends, that Elimelech's choice was not a neutral one. You know, for you and I, choosing where we're going to live may be a matter of indifference, some indifference, whether we live in Johnstown or some other city, whether we live in Pennsylvania or some other state or perhaps even another country. But Elimelech's residence, place of residence, carried moral and spiritual significance. You remember, God had delivered his people from Egypt. He had promised his people a dwelling place. He had brought them into the land of Canaan as a special place for them to live, where he blessed them with his presence and called it a place of rest and abundance. And yet during the time of the judges, there was often no rest and there was often famine in the land. Why? Well, because this is exactly what God said would happen if the people turned their back on the Lord. The, so the famine in, in Canaan, we need to make sure we get this point. At this particular point in redemptive history, a famine in Israel, in Canaan, is much, much more than merely a food crisis or the result of bad crop management. It is rather God's megaphone, his providential way of calling his people back. It's a warning and a call to repentance. A famine in the land was one of the covenant curses God promised for Israel's defection and failure to trust and obey. You can, you can read that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 if you want to look that up later. So when Elimelech saw the famine in the land of Canaan, how should he have processed this? Well, he, he ought to have read it through the lens of the warnings of Scripture. 
He, he ought to have connected the moral and spiritual chaos in the land of Israel with the famine in the land of Israel. He, he ought to have read providence in the light of the word of God and heard in the, the, the famine the warnings and the summons of the God of faithfulness calling his people back from sin, from, from rebellion, from backsliding. And he ought not to have fled from the land. He ought to have returned to his God. But you see, instead, he took his family, actually from the one place in the world at this time that God had promised to bless with his presence. And of all places, he led his family to pagan Moab. The, the Moab that, under the leadership of uh, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel in the wilderness. The same Moab whose, whose women seduced the men of Israel in the wilderness to worship foreign gods. Uh, the same Moab who had recently oppressed Israel during the days of Eglon. Sure, it sure doesn't sound like a place friendly to raising a godly family. But I'm sure Elimelech had his reasons, Right? If you ask them, look, Imelech, why, why, why are you leaving God's people? Why are you leaving the promised land? Why are you going to Moab? Well, look, it's just, it's just going to be for a little while. Just until the famine passes, then we'll, then we'll return. I mean, look, I've got a family to take, take care of. What choice do I have? They have food. We don't. Elimelech well, had his reasons. But dear friends, how many times have we rationalized disobedience to God's revealed will in Scripture so that we could pursue our own happiness and comfort? You know, I'll, I'll take that job. I, I know that there's you know, no church there for my family to worship and be nurtured, but look, look honey, it's just going to be for a few years. We'll be fine. Or... I'll date that guy. I know, he's, I know he's not a Christian, but he's a nice guy. What other, choice, what other choices do I have? We'll be fine. We usually have a list of reasons for doing what is right in our own eyes. But the Lord will often put things and people into our lives that along the way will, will prick our conscience. And the thing that did that, I think, in, or should have done that, at least in Elimelech's life, was his very own name. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. I think it should have given Elimelech pause before leaving the promised land. His own name, meaning, my God is king. My God reigns. He reigns over all. I'm his subject. That was the name written over this man's life. But in reality, this for this man, Elimelech, God was no more king in his life than he was in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel who had turned their backs on the Lord. God was not recognized in Elimelech's life, so he chose to follow the, the spirit of the age, like the zeitgeist of the times, and chose to do what was right in his own eyes. And again, from one point of view, what he chose to do, it makes perfect sense. Right? It was the fast track to securing family comfort and security. But you see, that's 
part of the way sin works, isn't it? It's part of the subtlety of, of sin's ensnarements. In deceiving us to think that sin is the best option or perhaps the only option opened before us. And so Elimelech chose the road to Moab, which turned out to be the road to nowhere. But which road will we choose, dear friends? You know, very often I think when, when we're faced with a life-defining choice that directs our future, the most major factors weighing in on our decision-making are very often the things that will provide us what, with what we want. The, the bottom line in our lives is Sadly, rarely God's revealed will as it's given in Scripture, especially if that revealed will of the Lord cuts against the desires of our hearts. And we rarely seriously think about the impact of our choices, how they will impact our walk with the Lord, how they will impact the people that we love. Like Elimelech, it's so easy for us to make choices without reference to what God has clearly says, said, to make decisions on the basis of what seems right to us without serious thought about the long-term implications. You know, I think many, many people bear the name Christian today when in reality their Christianity has no real impact on life-defining decisions that they make. Well, friends, that's not anything new. <laughs> that's exactly what was happening in the period of the judges. God's people doing whatever they felt like doing, whatever their heart told them to do. We might put it that way today. People identifying as the people of God, perhaps even saying things like, our God is king. And yet, living in a way that made it clear that God was not their king at all. And their confession turns out to be one that rings hollow. And so, friends, I think one of the things we, we, we run into here and are compelled to see from this passage is the roads that we choose expose our deepest commitments. And over time, it really makes it clear where our heart really lies. So this question again, where, where are you going? Where am I going? Where are we headed? And the road to Moab looked promising. It made sense. It seemed like the right thing to do at the time. But in reality, it, in this case, it literally turned out to be a dead end. Now, that was not apparent at the start of the journey. But then again, it rarely is. I'm sure at first Elimelech thought he had, he had made the right choice. You know, while his kinsmen were back in Israel suffering with empty stomachs, at least he and his family had full bellies. But then, as we make our way forward in this passage, things begin to unravel. Uh, verses 3 and 4. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons, these two 
Uh, they, they, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The other name uh, was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years, the text tells us. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that after Elimelech's death, the family was at another crossroads. They had another important decision to make. They could repent, turn around, and go home, or they could remain in Moab. And they chose to stay in Moab. They still counted the prospects of life in Moab better than life in Judah. They counted life in the land of compromise better than life in the land of promise. And the boys, they put roots down and married Moabite wives, adding sin to sin because the law of Moses explicitly commanded them not to. But again, like father, like son, I'm sure they had their reasons. I know what God's law says, but, but I mean, what choice do I have in this foreign land? This is, this is my only option. I need a wife. My family needs descendants. Or perhaps, given the fact that we're in the time of the judges, perhaps this is a period of such moral and spiritual decay that these two young men don't even have a knowledge of the written law of God. And they're just kind of going through life making choices. That's actually the language used in chapter 2, or excuse me, in, is it verse, verse the end of verse 2, when they remained there. The idea of the Hebrew there is they were just kind of, they were just kind of existing in Moab. Uh, eking out of existence, making pragmatic choices, doing whatever they needed to do to get by. And this is often the way it is for us. You know, we choose, we choose the road that leads us away from God's revealed will in Scripture. And, and once we are on that road, it seems like all other roads just go shut. They're closed to us. And, and then the road away from God just becomes wider and straighter and smoother. And it just seems so much easier to keep coasting along rather than turn around and go back the hard and sometimes long road of repentance. And for a while, though, for this family, things seemed to be going pretty well. So their choices were working out for them. Even though Naomi's husband had died, she, she at least still had two sons to care for her. And now with the two sons married, there was the prospect of, of future descendants who could grow up and perhaps continue to provide for Naomi if necessary. For 10 years, things went by just fine. But then tragedy struck again. In verse 5, both Malon and Killian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Please Realize what's happened there. In just half a verse, Naomi's entire world has crashed down around her. This, this is a description of heart-rending loss. She has not only buried her husband, now she has buried her two only sons. And no family means no food. And, and 
she's got no one to provide for her in the land of Moab, where, frankly, you know, government-sponsored assistance programs were in short supply. And so here's a, an, an aging, elderly woman, vulnerable, isolated from the people of God, with no support system in the land of Moab. Who in the world is possibly going to care for someone like Naomi? And so Naomi comes to another defining crossroad in her life. She had a decision to make. Maybe it didn't feel like much of a decision to her. But she could try to eke out an existence in Moab and survive. Or she could swallow her pride and return to her home, to her people, to her God. And at the bottom of the barrel, I think Naomi is beginning to realize that it is long past time for her to come home. And that brings us to the second thing I want us to think about here, this theme that we're going to continue to explore in Ruth, but today the the road home. And we we need to see how God is at work here in in all of this mess and the decisions being made, the decisions being made for people. God is governing over it all to work out his sovereign purposes for his people. But while the message that God is at work, you know, that's usually a comforting message to us, as it should be. But in the time of the judges, God at work means God was at work in blessing and in judgment. And in the time of the judges, those who rebelled against the Lord and turned their backs to him and did what seemed right in their own eyes, they consistently saw life turning sour for them. Whereas those who humbled themselves before the Lord and returned to him found the Lord to be quick to forgive and to restore And I think this pattern is at work in the opening verses of Ruth. Remember, they they left the land to flee from the famine, which was God's disciplinary judgment on Israel's rebellion. But then if you go to the next verse, in verse 6, it tells us that the Lord visited his people and had given them food, God's promised covenantal provision. And so given this context This means that God's people had returned to the Lord and saw his favor restored. That's that's the backdrop for Naomi's personal story. Bethlehem had repented and experienced the favor of the Lord. Now the question is, will that be true of Naomi? Now this message of God at work in judgment and blessing, it is, isn't it? It's both challenging as well as comforting. We need to have some careful thinking here to make sure we read this part of Scripture faithfully and say, for sure, God's actions of blessing and cursing are not as tangible in our lives today as they were during the period of the Mosaic Covenant. There were certain things that were earthly and external that had spiritual significance. You know, we don't see God's favor and disfavor as directly expressed in terms of physical prosperity and safety when we are faithful and famine or exile from the land when we are unfaithful. See, Israel uniquely experienced these covenant blessings and curses 
ultimately as a foreshadowing of the, the judgments and the rewards given by the Lord on the last day. Yet the spiritual realities to which those, those signs pointed to remain the same. So the, the road of unfaithfulness to God always leads to the same destination. And Imelimelech's story is a striking example of it. The way of unfaithfulness to God is always, always the way to death. Literally a dead end. And this story, though, it also teaches us another sobering lesson. In this story, not everyone who abandoned the path of the Lord returned. Right? Some, some who once seemed to be part of God's people proved that they were never really his. And they abandoned the path to life and and fall away. And I think we need to say, in fact, if it were not for the sovereign grace of God, each and every one of us in this room would end up exactly like these three men, the victims of our own folly and bad decisions, each going their own way and suffering the consequences. But thankfully, dear friends, we, we have a God whose grace is greater than all our sin. And he welcomes us to return. And he often does that by, by stirring in our hearts a rising awareness of just how foolish we have been. And so he stirred Naomi's heart, I think. We're going to see this takes time in Naomi's life. But I think here is the Lord stirring Naomi's heart to leave the land of rebellion, to swallow her pride, and to start on the long road home. You see, Naomi has a future in this story because of the grace of God. It's God's grace that gives Naomi a future in this story. She was not simply the victim of events outside of her control. She couldn't, she couldn't blame her husband for everything that had happened, especially since she had the opportunity to return to Bethlehem after his death. For, so for sure, she was personally responsible for at least some of her troubles. But here's the wonderful news. Yet no matter how far Naomi wandered away from the Lord and no matter how long, she was only ever one step away from returning home. So here's the, here's the message of hope for us if, we are, if we're going in the wrong direction. Even if we have chosen to do what is right in our own eyes, and no matter how long we have persisted in that rebellion, we are only ever one step away from coming home. See, by the grace of God, the road to nowhere may actually become the first leg of the long journey home. And the book of Ruth speaks to us then as a, as a people who are Maybe like Elimelech, maybe like Naomi, we often find that the grass seems far greener on the other side of the fence in the plains of Moab. The temptation to abandon the Lord for the world's provisions and comforts, it's, it's very, very strong. We have to be honest about that. Right? The option of choosing compromise instead of persevering by faith in the Lord's promises that is a theme running throughout the Old Testament. 
Because the food that the land of compromise this world offers to us is very immediate, very physical, very tangible, while the promises of God are constantly testing our faith. And so like believers in the Old Testament, we struggle here. Perhaps we complain about the job God has given to us. Perhaps, Perhaps we complain about the spouse that we have or the spouse that we don't have. And we fantasize about greener fields elsewhere. And perhaps we have to confess that we have turned our back on the Lord's way and have journeyed to the fields of Moab that seem to offer us what we were looking for. See, but the good news of the book of Ruth, the good news of the book of Ruth is not simply that God takes outsiders and makes them insiders like Ruth. The good news of this book is that his grace extends to those who already were insiders, but who have rebelled against him and pursued forbidden paths. No matter what we have done or how long we have done it, there is the hope of forgiveness and new beginnings for us today. And the ground of our forgiveness, the ground of these new beginnings, is nothing other than God's free grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's hope that we can begin again in in repentance. Now, this is often a slow work, as it surely was in Naomi's case. This slow work often involves painful paths. As the Lord strips away from us the things that we have been clinging to instead of trusting in him. But all along the road, the love of God draws us and holds on to us, leads us to himself, and never lets us go. But here's another lesson we need to just catch a clue for later on. that God's love is sometimes revealed in our lives through hard providences. God's love is revealed in our lives sometimes through hard providences. And if we are on the road to nowhere, his chastening work is never harsh. He is like a tender father. And it's never more than is, than is needed to draw us back to himself. It is designed to show us the emptiness of the paths that we have chosen for ourselves So that we might return to him and his ways. And dear friends, when we do return to him, we find in the end that he was all we needed all along. Our our father rejoices in welcoming home wayward sinners. He takes the proud and he brings them low. And he lifts up the humble. So, So the question again, dear friends, as we close... Where, where are you going? Where are you headed? Are you on the road to nowhere? Are you on the road that ultimately leads to a dead end? You know, may, maybe, maybe you say with your lips, my God is king, while your life is actually telling a very different story. Well, the good news of the book of Ruth to you, dear friend, today is this. You don't have to go down that road. There is a way back. There is a way back because of Jesus. 
And the way back is the way of faith and repentance. Believing in the God of promise and turning from doing what is right in your own eyes to the ways of the Lord. And so if you're headed down the road to nowhere today, I simply want to plead with you to come home. Come home. You're only one step away from beginning the road back to home. What does the parable of the prodigal son teach us about coming home? You know, does the father sit with his arms crossed in the house waiting for his son to come crawling on his knees begging for mercy? Or does the father run out to meet you with open arms and say, welcome home, my son. Let's throw the greatest party anyone has ever seen. And so if you've been drinking from these empty cisterns, turning to the world for greener fields, the book of Ruth is calling you today to come home, dear friend. Come home to your heavenly Father through the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this little book of Ruth and what we are learning together today and in the weeks ahead. Forgive us for all of the times we have done what is right in our own eyes. Thank you for your loving discipline, for not leaving us to ourselves. We pray that by your grace you would lead us on the road to home. And in the days and weeks and months ahead as we continue to look at the book of Ruth, we ask that you would teach us wonderful things from your word. And we ask all of these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.